0: The CFO has become a little bit of this pivot point of what exactly are all of your stakeholders looking for? How do you build that back? And then how do you have the seat at the table to be the voice of objectivity? And every function that now requires objectivity to be at the front and center of everything you do starts to roll up into finance in many companies.
1: From McKinsey & Company, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Deepak Galecha, Chief Financial Officer of Palo Alto Networks, a leading cybersecurity company. And today our podcast features a conversation between Deepak and Eric Kutcher, our own CFO. This is part of a series of CFO discussions that Eric is leading. And you can listen to Eric's first interview with Teradata's CFO, Claire Bramley in episode 163, which we'll also link to in our show notes. In today's episode, Deepak and Eric will discuss their experiences around the expanding CFO mandate, what it's like to lead the finance function in a highly volatile business environment, and how they're grappling with AI and other new and emerging technologies. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Now, here's Eric. Hi, it's Eric Kutcher here, Senior
2: Partner and CFO of McKinsey & Company. I am joined today by friend and fellow CFO, Deepak Golecha from Palo Alto Networks. For those that don't know, Palo Alto Networks is one of the largest pure play cybersecurity companies in the world. Last year, the company reported revenue of nearly 7 billion, growing at 25%. And I could not be more excited to be joined by Deepak. So Deepak, welcome.
0: Thank you very much. And good afternoon to everyone that's, uh, that's joining us here.
2: Fantastic. So Deepak, maybe we can start with a little bit about you. would love to hear a little bit about you, the person, you, the
0: CFO, how you got to where you are, Got it. So maybe if I just start, if you were to see me, the genetics are from India. The accent is not. I grew up and went to school and university in the UK. So hopefully still have a a great British accent here. I actually began my career at Procter & Gamble, thought I would just be there for a year or two and then join my father's family business. And then what I thought was going to be two years became a 19-year career at Procter & Gamble that was almost always in finance, treasury, M&A, multiple operating roles across many categories and regions, Latin America, North America, Europe, and global. I thought I would spend the rest of my time at Procter & Gamble, which I affectionately called Pack & Go, because that's what it felt like every couple of years. I then left Procter & Gamble and was a CFO at two companies in the consumer industry and then was a the CEO of an early childhood education company before I joined Palo Alto Networks, uh, where I'm where I'm currently the CFO.
2: So you and I share more than just being CFO. We have one other you know element in common. I too thought I'd stay at McKinsey for about two years, and 26 plus years later, I am still here. So there is uh, you at least did change. I am I am still where I began. So I'm not sure what that says about me. But I will say like it's pretty far to go from the consumer space to the cybersecurity space. So like. I, What is that like from a transition?
0: Uh, You know, it it, it is a significant transition, but um, it's been one that I've loved. I mean, it wasn't the first industry to industry transition because going to education from consumer was also a big transition. But frankly, I think it's, it's always fascinating when you do move because you ask a lot of relatively dumb questions, but they're usually first principle questions that haven't really been asked for a long time. And I think that's often the secret source that unlocks great value is you're just looking at it from a different angle, asking, why do we do things this way? Uh, and, and that's proven to be great in both the education and now the technology space.
2: You also bring, I think, a relatively unique view into being the CFO because you were a CFO. You grew up kind of, as you mentioned, through the finance organization. You then went to a series of operating roles and on to be a CEO. And then you jumped back into becoming a CFO. And so you probably have a bit of a unique view, having kind of seen this from multiple sides, maybe kind of take a step back, right? As you think about the role of the CFO and what you know today, but also, frankly, what you see from the other roles you've held, what is it that makes the CFO role like fun and interesting? And and then let's talk also a bit about how can you have the most impact?
0: Just to be clear, I think a good philosophy in life is to try to bring joy to your role rather than look for a role that gives you joy. I think what, what I've always loved about finance is that you've got a dual mandate, right? You're there to support the business. You're also there to play a stewardship role for the company overall. You basically are the only function that can see everything end-to-end. You're involved in just about everything. At its core, the number one priority for the shareholders who ultimately are the owners of the company is total shareholder return which happens to be your area of expertise if you're a CFO. So I think that's really why I've enjoyed every CFO role. That's why I think the CFO role is unique. I also think that it's ever changing, right? I mean, if you just think about what's been happening in the last 12 to 18 months is CFOs are the ones that have to pivot company strategy uh, because the cost of money has quickly increased from near zero to closer to historical rates. You know, a lot of people are calling this, like, the revenge of the CFO. I basically call it the return to sense and sensibility. But y- you really have to be able to understand the implications end-to-end. And uh, I think it's it's only the CFO and the CFO organization that, that's able to do that. So the good news is, in an ever-changing world, you're always going to have to constantly be reallocating resources to the highest ROI the CFO or the CFO is always in the middle of that, and that just makes it exciting. No matter what day of the week you wake up.
2: So I've often said, and folks are going to get tired of me using this analogy, but I grew up as a catcher in baseball, and I played till pretty, you know, uh, late in my kind of athletic career. And what's unique about that position is you're the only one that is facing the field. Yeah, that's right. Right, you're the only one that sees everything in front, and it gives you a totally unique perspective. And when you describe what it's like to be the CFO, it is the thing that most has always resonated for me. It's, you do have a unique view that no one else has. Um, And it's a view that that I think you articulated to have a real strategic element to it, which is the enablement, or I often think about the acceleration of the business at the same time, stewardship of the business and to make sure you're making prudent decisions and you're meeting the commitments that the company has. I also think, and I'd love to get your views on this, it requires being able to peek around corners a little bit more than the average, right? I, I think it's a helpful level of paranoia um, that a CFO has to have because you have to kind of think about what could go
0: wrong. That's right. Look, I think I think it starts off by recognizing that if you're not peeking around the corner, then bad things can happen, right? Uh, and and at the end of the day, like as a CFO, you're always going to be expected to, hey, why did you not forecast that? Why did you not see that coming? But I think the best way to actually Peek around corners is just to—it's to build a network, right? Uh, And to, you know, um, it it can be in multiple different areas, like your peer groups of CFOs. It it can also be talking to other functional leaders, having one-on-ones, having a robust ERM system. But I think the the beauty is that you can go in a lot of different directions, and it's all core part of your job. That's that's awesome, and as a result, you build an ability to look around corners and. Frankly, even if those corners never come, it makes you a lot smarter and a lot more intellectually stimulated on a whole series of topics you would otherwise not spend much time thinking about.
2: So let's touch on another topic you brought up, which, um, you know, the the return to historical norms at a, you know, a reasonable real cost of capital. How is that impacting or how are you thinking about different decisions today than you might have made two or three years ago when money was for all intents and purposes free?
0: Yeah, I think, look, at the, at the highest level, when money was free, it was chase growth at all costs. I think the market helped propagate that as well. You had a lot of companies that had no ability to make money, no positive margins, but they were growing and they were getting funded with tons and tons of capital. And that's why I call it the return of sense and sensibility. That's never sustainable. History's shown us that. We've always had total shareholder return. As our kind of North Star, our anchor point of is this going to work over a three-year horizon? Is this going to be a good ROI? Is this going to be something that actually is going to grow either your top line, your margin, or improve your cash flow and capital structure? And if it doesn't, then you have no utility for it. And I think a lot of it has been: hey, you just you use it as another way to raise the bar. And if you can constantly raise the bar again and again and again, it, it's amazing how consistency brings everybody along.
2: So, you know, it definitely does raise the bar, right? So if you're thinking about acquisitions, boy, a lot of those acquisitions that had a bit of that hockey stick or a bit of the return that was six or seven years out may not cross the hurdles anymore, right? Or the business decisions that were the organic investment that were, as you mentioned, kind of grow at all costs, right, very, very different when you're discounting cash flows back at current cost of capital versus, you know, what it might've been two years ago. That's right. Or even the, what's the relative expectation of performance, right? I was talking to one company the other day and and they were kind of trying to figure out why is their share price so stuck? But when you're kind of a 7.5% bond yield type company and you're getting, you know, what is effectively risk-free money at, what is it, five and change, maybe even 6% today, 7.5% does not look that attractive, right? And so suddenly you've got to figure out what you're going to do to compete in a very, very different world um, of choices.
0: Yeah, I I would just say another aspect that I found fascinating is, it finally centers everybody back on you should focus on cash, (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, it's incredible that we've had to go through all of this. It's like, really? That should be the first thing that everybody everybody learns. Uh, That's what you typically do on your own personal budgeting, but somehow we took a 15-year hiatus from figuring out that that was important.
2: I have now lived through this three times. We try to justify these outrageous valuations that sometimes occur during these moments, right? And yet, if you kind of look at the way we're valuing versus fundamentals, there's this massive disconnect. And lo and behold, every time, we do revert back to fundamentals. So I tend to think it's a great indicator of where to stay steady. Since you kind of started in finance, how is it that you've seen the finance function evolve
0: you know, in your career? I think the finance functions just got a much broader mandate like today than it had before. There was a time where the finance function and accounting was almost synonymous. Uh, I didn't grow up through the accounting track at, uh, at Procter & Gamble. It was, it was FP&A that was a track, but in many companies, FP&A was like a luxury. And then you started to have specialist areas that got more complicated, like tax, you know, treasury, and things like that. Then you've recently had other stakeholders, so you have things like ESG and like non-financial metrics that are super important for for your shareholders and other stakeholders. I think the reality is the CFO has become a little bit of this pivot point of what exactly are all of your stakeholders looking for? How do you build that back and then how do you have the seat at the table to be the voice of objectivity and every function that now requires objectivity to be at the front and center of everything you do starts to roll up into finance in many companies. So I've seen it change a lot. Um, I've seen the organization change a lot, like uh, within finance, and I've seen the skill sets change a lot. Um, But again, that's, I think, part of what makes it exciting.
2: All right. So let me pick on one of the changes that's clearly hitting us, um, at least I feel it every day, which is what's the impact of AI in different forms. Sometimes it's generative, sometimes it's other forms. How are you thinking about this in particular for the finance function?
0: I think it's important that we get really clear on what we mean by AI, right? Just to be, just to be really specific, there's kind of AI that's been around for a long time. I'm just going to call that precision AI, right? That's like machine learning, lots of different things that have been out there for, frankly, like decades in, in, in many cases and then you have generative ai which has been the the big explosion over the last you know like 12 months or so with chat gpt and everything out there so i think the, the most important thing is to understand that there are two types of ai and which one are you talking about and how do they link together i think precision ai is something that everybody should be doing all the time it's basically a more sophisticated way of automation it's used in all of our products and then you have generative ai where if you, you wanna be 90% right, it's a great starting point. But I, I think from a finance point of view, you know, we typically steer more towards the precision AI of it. I haven't met that many finance people that say, it's okay for me to be right only 90% of the time. right? Um, and so we're playing with it a lot. We're coming up with a lot of potential use cases that can help us do our work more efficiently. But I would say what I've seen is I haven't yet seen many real life examples of where the generative AI is going to completely undo what we typically do day to day that requires more precision accuracy. What I absolutely think it's going to do is it's going to make all of us more productive.
2: I love your framing of kind of there's the precision and then there's a generative and Uh, Your choice of language is, I I think, quite interesting because it does talk to the, whether it's 90% or a little bit lower, but the accuracy of the generative side. I I think where at least I'm seeing is some of the opportunities to bring those two together. So I was actually on with my finance leaders this morning, and we introduced out of the FP&A function, a generative AI tool that basically says to them from a controls point of view, hey, something here looks a little bit off, right? Have you checked onto this or onto this? And it's able to look at data just differently, and so that's the precision component of it. But to be able to take that precision component and put it into a mechanism that is easy for the average individual to understand or to get like to get to their attention, that does require a little bit of the generative, right? Because it's got to be able to take those two things together. And so I think there is an area where, from an FPNA point of view, um, uh, again from the precision point of view using models as opposed to just kind of the way we've typically kind of gone out and done planning is also another one. The other which, gosh, there's an awful lot of analysts that are out there that are covering UNF perspectives and how do you take all of that input and make heads or tails, whether it's the zillion questions you get every quarter, right, and by the way, not just your questions, but who are the five competitors you're facing and what questions are they getting, right, and what is that telling me in a synthesized view? that's probably an area where 90% accuracy is probably more than okay.
0: Look, completely agree with you and I think, you know, just to be clear, it's not that we're not doing it. I would say everybody on my team is probably spending a good amount of time thinking about AI and doing it, but I don't think we're ever going to be comfortable with a end product that's just 90% accurate because we're finance people. So, ultimately, we're finding it as a great productivity tool on the generative AI I will say one of the things that it has taught me is it's a great foil to go look at every process that you cover end-to-end and ask the question, why do we do it that way? And can you use generative AI to revamp your process? And most of the time when you do that, you find that most of our processes are at least five to 10 years out of date, right? And and if you actually use the newest tools and the newest methodologies out there, there's, there's a ton of efficiencies to be had. So, if I give you an example of, we've actually spent an awful lot of time looking at how we think about travel and expenses as a company with an idea of using generative AI. We've ended up completely revamping our process and asking ourselves questions of why do managers have to actually approve everybody's expense reports? Why do we have policies that have certain limits on it? Why, why do we make sure that? Why, why do we even allow people to use their personal uh, cards to do expenses? So you you basically use generative AI as the foil to revamp your entire process end to end and by doing that we've actually found that you know we, we can we can save like a significant portion of the entire workflow within TNE to begin with
2: So another topic that I am sure you spend time on in your role as CFO is talent and would love to hear a little bit of how do you think about talent today? Boy, it might feel a little different than it did two or three years ago when we were in the height of everyone leaving. And both talent from the perspective of what are you looking for in talent that might be different than, than it used to be. Equally, what kind of talent do you think you're going to need going forward that might be different than what you had, especially given the the recent discussion
0: on, on AI? Yeah, no, look, I think talents, uh, it's a great topic to talk about, one that I've got a huge amount of passion for. So let me just start off with, it starts with recognizing that people are your greatest asset. If you take that to its logical conclusion, your strong performers are literally worth 2 to 3x like what your medium or poor performers are worth. Right? And so if, if you don't really focus on understanding and developing your talent, then you've kind of missed a little bit of the, the, the point. Right? So, uh, and you'll never be able to execute at near-peak potential. Uh, no matter which company you're in. So we take that very seriously. I I haven't had the benefit of growing up at Procter & Gamble, which is one of the few promote from within companies. So everybody starts at the lowest level and has to work their way up the ladder. And we've done the same thing. We've basically said, let's have an end-to-end journey map for our talent that we use to develop our talent. Everything from before day one, the interview process and making sure that you actually uh, hire the best to how do you have a proper onboarding day to how do you actually train folks, how do you then do assignment planning, how do you do continuous training, how do you promote internal mobility, but it's hard work, right? I mean, we have mandatory development hours for all of our finance employees each quarter with accountability to their managers. That's, That's tough to do. It's tough to track. It's tough to kind of make sure that you've got the content to do it, but it's hugely, hugely important. And... One of the best things as a manager like myself is to actually see people promote from within and then you find people you know, like going from strength to strength within the same company and able to contribute so much more.
2: I want to combine those two topics of both AI and the talent because it's interesting. One of the things we're seeing in a very different space, call it software development, is you can take very, very young talent from a software development point of view and get them to be performing at someone that has been around for many more years of experience through a lot of the co-pilots that are out there from a software development point of view. Do you think they're going to be the equivalent for a finance function that we can bring someone in and get them to move into a higher level of performance, a more experienced type of role, even faster with the equivalent
0: of finance co-pilots? I think the reality is that you can accelerate the time it takes to be able to do things like document, like uh, do process uh, maps, do all of those kinds of things using copilots and a lot of the new technology that's out there. And I think that does mean that ultimately what differentiates great performance from weaker performance is usually thinking capability and coming up with new insights and, you know, taking data, turning it into insights and then the insights into action, right? Uh, and so it's a fair point. I think, yeah, you could use AI to be able to, like, minimize the amount of time spent on that so that you maximize the amount of time spent on all all, all of the other things but i know it's a bit early i haven't yet seen it in practice um
2: yeah i haven't either it just it made me think a little bit because we're we're seeing it as like one of the strongest cases today for ai from a talent point of view is in that software development it made me say hmm i do wonder there's as well so i don't know what you feel like but um i've been in this role now for about three and a half years and there's nothing about what I thought I'd be dealing with that I am <laughs> dealing with, and there's none of the things I am dealing with I could have ever imagined. And I kind of reflect back and you're navigating a set of external shocks that I don't think we can you know, quite figure out. And so, you know, given that, and given kind of the overall state of the economy, how do you think about what types of decisions or how you're making decisions from the CFO seat as it relates to kind of company strategy and so forth that you might have made differently in a different environment?
0: Yeah, look, I think just to summarize it all, like VUCA is the new normal, right? So I mean, that's definitely how, um, how it feels, how it has been, and frankly, I think how it will be in the future. I think the focus is control the controllables, right? There's a lot of things that you just, you don't know how to do, you can't do, you can't predict how things will go, there are certain things that you do know like you're always going to know what's the right thing to do and what's not so never compromise anything that's related to integrity ever always invest in your products always invest in your people you have to start getting comfortable making principle based decision making right that's probably the made up catchphrase of the day <laughs> right um but i would I say like yeah i like it I, I would say that's the only thing you can do and then i think from a pure financial point of view You've got to get used to doing scenario planning on the fly and in your head, right? So that you can make sure that every major decision you're making, you're saying, okay, what needs to be true for this to be a bad decision? And then quickly do the math on, okay, what's that likelihood? And then just make a call on what's the probability of that eventuality happening? Uh, If it's small, okay, I'm making that decision. If it's like, oh, that's a big probability. Well, let's do a little bit more analysis. I think that's the reality. One thing that I will say has completely gone from from my time is there used to be times where on one piece of work it would be, okay, well, let's go build a model, train it, like let's take two weeks to just figure out how to do the math and then come back and then we can discuss it. That's gone. It's like, okay, let's take twenty four hours maximum, and then you know we need to have the math done to be able to to make a decision. So I, I do think agility is probably the one thing that comes to my mind. You've got to have an organization that's agile as well
2: let me let me play it back a little bit in slightly different language, but I think we have to be courageous enough to make decisions, yep, but we have to be flexible enough to revisit those decisions as new and different information comes in and there's very few and bits of it, there's very few decisions we make that we can't unmake, and we have to be willing to recognize that
0: the conditions have changed in ways that we didn't anticipate. You're absolutely right, like you can't not make decisions like procrastination is not a good thing, and yeah, if you get proven wrong then. You know, you've just got to have the humility to kind of like say, it's okay, I was wrong, let's go back, let's do what's right with today's data. Completely agree with you. All
2: right, let's flip now to cyber. As CFOs, one of the things we have to think more about is cybersecurity and would love your advice and counsel as to, for those of us that probably don't spend enough time thinking about this, how should be and what should we be thinking about given kind of the, the risks that are out there
0: today? You've got a lot of CFOs on this podcast, like you, we're all individuals. Everything we're doing is becoming more digital, right? Um, just think about your, how you do banking, how your health tracking now works with devices, Uh, you know, social media, like even how I drive my Tesla, right? Everything is, is now becoming incredibly digital. That just makes the attack surface area. If you think about it from a hacker's point of view, that much larger and that much richer. And just imagine for you, if it was you or if it was uh, a close family member, Imagine if they got hacked and then somebody started to manipulate that, what it could do for you. So just that same phenomenon is true for every company in the world. Like, technology has become the foundation of how every company operates, how every company innovates, how every company differentiates. Right? So the importance of technology, it's huge. And it, it's not just about financial costs or PII data, but it's a lot of reputation risk and the impact to shareholder value. I mean, just look at what's happened in in, in purely the month of September. We've had, I think it was five or six different public companies file 8Ks around cybersecurity saying, look, we got breached and this will have a material impact on our financials. Like, you know, I think CFOs, again, if we just go back to what we said about the CFOs, CFOs have a stewardship role. They don't directly own functions that may be in the center of all of this, like IT. But at the end of the day, we've got oversight from an audit perspective. We typically have oversight from an ERM perspective. And for sure, every audit committee chair would expect the CFO to be a little bit of an expert on cybersecurity if you want to be a really good CFO. So I would just say, if you're not an expert on cybersecurity, get trained, right? Because the reality is, uh, I think everyone's going to have to be a little bit of a expert on cybersecurity in the, in the same way that we've all had to become a little bit more of an expert on ESG, even though they weren't financial metrics that we thought about a couple of years ago. And then I would frankly just start off with like, again, some principles that you want to you wanna just think about, which is if I just make three simple principles, it's what really matters to you as a company? Like what's your crown jewels in terms of data? And is that secured differently? Than uh, data that's not crown jewels. Having access rights to emails is interesting, but for Palo Alto Networks, our crown jewels are IP. I don't have access to our IP, and nor should I, right? Um, so I think that that's the key. And are you treating them completely differently? Do you have a lot of complexity? Because complexity is usually what creates its own inertia. You know, when it comes to having the surface area that a hacker can attack. If you're really complex, then usually that means that it's taking a lot to stitch th- things together internally. just recognize that's like fertile ground for for a hacker and then I think the third thing is make sure that it's part of your e r m framework or your controls framework, and you are actually doing some degree of penetration testing we We've all done business continuity planning ever since you know whether it was nine eleven or hurricanes. every company's become used to it. Why wouldn't you do that on a hack and just kind of like you know do a mock hack and figure out how you deal with it.
2: So, Deepak, you, you suggested we all get trained. Here I am a CFO, I'd like to be better trained on cyber. Where do I go?
0: I think it just starts off with asking the question, have you sat down with your CISO, your Chief Information Security Officer? Have you ever sat down and had a one-on-one and just asked them to walk you through, hey, what's our cybersecurity posture? How do we segregate our data or how do we do that? You need to just be inquisitive because you're looking at it through a different lens, like as the layman, as the business person that's just trying to make sure, how do I think about it? I will say one thing that I've used a lot, which I know is going to sound a little bit strange, but it's like, think about your home security, right? And it's just like, OK, well, do I feel good about the lock I have on the door? Do I feel good about the sensors that I have on my windows? Do I feel good that I've got heat monitor, motor, motion sensors? Just look at your own home security understand how it's all stitched together, and then go and think about that as, a, as an analogy for how you want to think about cybersecurity when you have the conversation. It actually usually does help you understand what, what they're trying to do in many different ways.
2: So I think many CISOs are gonna thank you because their calendars just got a little bit busier, so they're not <laughs> just dealing with cybers, they're dealing with their CFOs. But two last questions. One, what advice do you have for that CFO who's just getting started?
0: Uh, let me just put it in in three distinct phases for the first ninety days. Like if you're a new CFO, because I actually do uh, and have given training on this. The first is you've got to check out the specific areas that could get you fired, and make sure that they're under control. I know it sounds kind of strange, but it's super important. Do you have enough cash for your operations for the next whatever eighteen to twenty four months? Depends on which business you're operating. Do you have any accounting entries concerns or gaps that could get you close to a material restatement of your financials? And do you have any control issues that are reported that are not being followed through or recurring? Those fundamentally are the three reasons that a CFO gets fired. You've got to make sure that you tackle that. First off, the second thing that I would suggest is understand what your predecessor focused on and was really good at. And generally speaking, do a couple of things that are in a completely different direction, right? Because partly it's to show stakeholders, really your board, that, You've got confidence in your own abilities and priorities. And partly it's because it's frankly more difficult to add significant value to something your predecessor spent a lot of time on. And oh, by the way, odds are they did that pretty well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, I think the third one is you've got to assess every single one of your direct reports properly and make the obvious changes quickly. If you think about interviewing CFOs that have been there for a while and you just ask them one question of, What's the one thing that they wish they had done earlier? Pretty much all of them would say it would either be eliminate their weaker performance faster or make their better decisions sooner, right? Um, so, so get on with it, right? Uh, I would just say, once you've got through your first 90 days, take something that's logical and tangible that works for you. It, I'm not going to sell anyone on anything. Whatever works for you, I happen to take TSR as a framework but just take something and use it to frame a different approach that just allows you to carry the organization along. It's just a great way for you to be able to change the priorities.
2: All right, last question. What are you most excited about when it comes to the future of being a CFO and the finance function more broadly?
0: Oh, boy, it's a great question. What am I most excited about? I think what I'm probably most excited about is that you know we you know we get a seat at the table for almost every major decision that a company can can make which i think is is fantastic and we can actually see across multiple different functions so our ability to influence the outcome is huge when it comes to the future of the finance function what i what i get most excited about is we actually should be the function that has the highest strike rate of success for any of our ideas because we typically know exactly how to make them come true because we we actually have all the relationships. And as long as you've invested in understanding your business, you should have the business understanding as well. That's what gets me super energized and excited is you're not just throwing ideas at the wall. You know, Most of the ideas that you have should have a high strike rate and that can be super energizing.
2: Back to what we said, what I said at the beginning, which is, it's like being the catcher on the field, field. Right? You, you are the only one that sees it that direction, you are in on every play, it is never a dull moment, That's exactly and boy, right. you really can shape things both directly and indirectly. That's right. That's right. So Deepak, huge, huge, huge thanks. I know uh, you are incredibly busy, and so to take the time out to do that, I personally appreciate it. I am sure all the people who are going to listen in and learn from you, and they will learn a lot. Uh, we'll certainly appreciate it. So just a huge thanks for taking the time and sharing your wisdom and your experience.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me and uh, uh, thanks to everyone for listening.
1: And I also want to thank all of our listeners for joining today. We really hope you enjoyed the discussion. And if you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, all you need to do is email us at I-T-S-R at McKinsey.com and that stands for inside the strategy room. You can also share your ratings and reviews on your podcast player with many thanks to everyone who's already done so. We really appreciate all of your comments and feedback and encourage you to please keep them coming. If you enjoyed the episode and you'd like to subscribe, you can follow our weekly series on your podcast player, where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. We also offer an inside the strategy room podcast collection page available at McKinsey.com I T S R. And there you can easily browse all of our prior podcasts across six major themes, as well as access written transcripts of those conversations. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest publications and insights, we encourage you to sign up on our insights page at McKinsey.com SCF, which stands for Strategy and Corporate Finance, or you can follow us on Twitter or X at mckstrategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn at the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.